Muslim. To many people, this combination cannot exist. Many question, doesn't Islam hate gays? Doesn't the queer community hate religion? Radioactive Zaytun Ahmed introduces us to a queer Muslim leader who once thought the same thing. A'uzu billahi minash rajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim This is Sada Majid, a 25-year-old Muslim. I pray all the time, like throughout the day. I always have my prayer beads on me. That's like my sense of security. They're also queer. Sada uses the pronoun they. I identify as trans or gender non-conforming person um, who is also queer in my orientation. Sada was raised in an environment where homophobia was woven in so tightly with their socialization that being queer wasn't even presented as an option for them. It wasn't an option in the white Christian school they attended during the day or the Pakistani Muslim household they returned to in the afternoon. My mom would like reiterate why this wasn't okay in our culture and our religion. I kept being fed that my culture and my religion said these things. Sara started becoming infatuated with their female friends in high school, but they stayed quiet for five years. Then one day randomly, after coming home from college, my mom was like, Sara, are you gay? And I was like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then she was like, yes, you are. And I was like, no, I'm not. And then she was like, yes, you are. And I was like, okay, fine, I am. And she was like, no, you're not. You just think you are. Their mom didn't ask them to leave, but I felt compelled to leave because I wouldn't be able to be myself at home. Three weeks after coming out, Sara left home for good. They went to go see their dad, who was separated from their mom. Sara hadn't cried in front of their mom, but when their dad asked them about their sexuality... They did. He's like, I'm your dad. If you can just respect our culture, then I'm okay with that. Then it's fine. I accept you. You're my daughter. I'm not going to disown you. Sada was out to their family and out of their mother's house, but they still didn't know who they were, what gender, what religion. So they decided to take a class called Women and World Religions. And it just went in and my mind was like blown about like how many powerful women are in the religious world. And so... It was kind of this moment where I was like, whoa, like I can be religious, but maybe I can be myself. After this class, they knew they wanted to help queer people. They got an internship at the Q Center, which is the LGBT center at the University of Washington. They found a friend there, a best friend, actually. They started chatting with this guy, Ali. Well, that's a pseudonym because he's not out to his family. And they both realized that we're both queer and both brown and both Muslim and like, whoa, this is not happening. Like, wow, like I haven't met someone like me or my identity. So I guess it was like a life changing experience meeting them. There's never a day that goes by that he has never checked on me and made sure we were both safe and loved and um, happy. Whenever I am with my queer friends or with my Muslim friends, there was always this part of me that I had to hide, but with them, I could be who I am, you know? Even with the friend, Sada still questioned what it meant to be Muslim and queer, especially the Muslim part. I, I think I think about that maybe like 30 times a day. And actually, I didn't know for a long time. Sada even went to a workshop to brush up on their prayers, all in an attempt to reconnect with their faith, to feel the love of Allah again. To Sada, Islam started having a less restrictive meaning. 
Islam means peace. And so it's how much peace can I like bring to those around me? Even though Sada's faith was strong, it was still hard for them to fit in with the Muslim community. Most of the time I do have to hide my identity because I don't want to be targeted for being queer and trans. But at the same time, I'm like so thirsty for it. I want to go to the mosque and I want to participate. But mosques are sectioned off between the sexes. A brother's only section and a sister's only section. If you don't fit into one of those genders, then where do I go? existence spaces where intersections are inevitable and queer tears are expected. I'm committed Sada started writing and performing poetry. With the inability to locate others out there in the same daily routine, repenting five times a day about feeling in between, often appearing unseen. But Sada was still looking for a community where they could fully be themselves and be surrounded by people like them. So in 2013, Sada and Ali created NOR, a local organization in Seattle for queer Muslims. We're basically a group of LGBTQI Muslims that get together and eat and work as support to each other. So that's like my heart, basically. The heart of Sara is Noor, and like it's my favorite achievement in my life, I'd have to say. Noor started with just Sara and Ali, and now around 50 people in Seattle are involved. When they can't go to their blood family, they can turn to Noor, a chosen family. Chosen family is my favorite kind of family. It is the people who basically have fostered my growth, not necessarily even like in a, you know, in a queer way or an Islamic way, but like just as a human being. Creating space for queer Muslims meant opening themselves up to the rejection of the Muslim community, a community I'm a part of. I want to know why weren't you scared? <laughs> so I was scared for a long time. I was really scared. I was afraid coming here today that, you know, someone else who's Muslim wants to interview me, but also ex having faith that we can be here for each other as a community despite our differences. Sada shared with me the biggest lessons from their journey. Whether you're a child or you're an adult, you're exactly who you need to be in that moment. And accepting that about yourself is going to unlock so many things. They keep queer Muslims in their heart and make prayers for them daily. I thank you, God, for blessing me with a family of Noor, my fellow brothers and sisters, and those that do not have a gender, my siblings. You have provided me the guidance and the strength to stay alive every day. For Radioactive, I'm Zaytoun Ahmed. Being a teenager in America is hard enough. Imagine being a teenager growing up with two completely different cultures and only wanting one of them. Radioactive Sarai Marashi has more. On the first day of eighth grade, a boy walked up to me and asked if I had a bomb in my backpack. The whole class erupted into laughter. My cheeks turned bright red and I sank into my seat. People had stereotyped me before, but this was the first time I felt it, and it felt like a bomb had been dropped onto my lap. I began to feel ashamed all the time. I felt it every morning when the teacher took attendance and called out my exotic-sounding name, Soraya Marashi. In my history classes, when I felt the stares of my classmates during the annual 9-11 lesson, and when I looked into the eyes of my own mother. 
I felt guilty when you would come home and I didn't see happiness or uh, peace. I thought maybe if I had given you like, um, I don't know, a more American middle name, then you could have used that. Was I selfish because I was like uh, uh, loyal to my culture? You know, you start to doubt yourself when your kid is unhappy when they come home. And I thought maybe if we had moved back home, it would have been better. Iran is the home my mom is talking about. My grandparents immigrated to America from Iran with my mother and her siblings in tow to escape the Iraq war. They both lived with us for much of my childhood and this allowed our Iranian traditions to continue to thrive. But that doesn't mean I was raised in a particularly religious household. We didn't pray five times a day, we didn't cut pork out of our diet, and we didn't wear the hijab. But my little brother and I kissed the Quran before we left for school each morning. We burned incense to block out the evil eye. And we all spoke Farsi in the house every day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Mashallah, God has willed. Khuda hafez, God be with you. Most people believe that in America. There are Muslims who want to live here and live under our constitution, but too much we find a growing number of them that believe Sharia should supersede the U.S. Constitution and one there at me, look, he's yeah. in other countries. The glimpses of Islam I experienced as a kid didn't necessarily match up with the portrayals of Islam I saw on the news. Words like jihad and Sharia law echoed in my head. Images of terrorist organizations claiming to follow Islam, holding assault rifles and proudly taking responsibility for attacks on innocent civilians. I stopped learning Farsi. I stopped kissing the Quran. At family gatherings, I stayed up in my room. When somebody asked me about my culture, I would say, I am Muslim. But I would make sure they knew that I was non-practicing. Not because I cared if they knew about my upbringing, but because I didn't want to be associated with Islam. My mother told me that my diversity and uniqueness made me beautiful, but I didn't want to be diverse. I wanted to be normal. I didn't want my name. I didn't want my olive skin, my big nose, my dark hair. I wanted so desperately to look like the blonde-haired and blue-eyed girls I was surrounded with every day. But even as I wrestled with the shame I felt about my culture, there was one memory that shame just couldn't seem to touch. It began as an accident, but I became more and more intrigued with every encounter. My grandmother, my baby John, could never hear the sound of my little bare feet against the hard wooden floor as I tiptoed in to observe. I would wait quietly in the dark corner, wide-eyed and perplexed, at the most beautiful white hijab upon her head. I listened to her murmur prayers from the Quran and bow her head to the floor eight consecutive times, all in reverence to her Allah. They say how you dream indicates your thought process. And so Bibi John always dreamt when she would tell me her dreams of her small town and she would speak Farsi in her dreams. She is a follower of all the things that she grew up with believing in and being a mother first. She sacrificed a lot, but I, now that I'm I am westernized in my beliefs. I never thought I never thought it was a flaw. Her belief system and her traditions. That's who she is. If you take those away from her, it's uh, it's someone different, right? It's part of who she is. I didn't realize the beauty of being different. 
I let my uniqueness isolate me from my peers rather than let it bring us together. And right around the same time I began to love my culture again, something else happened. In high school, most of my friends were white and knew nothing about Middle Eastern culture. But they began to ask me if they could try Persian food. They wanted to learn how we danced at weddings. They wanted to listen to my mother speak to her relatives on the phone. Hello. My teachers began keeping me after class to ask me questions about myself and my culture, how I grew up. My confidence grew and grew. I learned how to block out the occasional ignorant comment. After all, I knew my culture better than anyone. I lived it every day. It was rooted in my identity. And I knew what it felt like to be alone. I knew intolerance better than most of my peers. But all of that helped me understand how to empathize with others, how to treat other people better. Here you meet people from all over the world and you can share your language, your, your religion, your beliefs in a respectful, open-minded uh, environment. And that might not be the case in other places. That's what I hope for your generation and your children. And I know I know whatever we're going through at the moment, it will pass and it will be love and acceptance always, hopefully. I don't say I am Muslim but anymore. Now, I just say that I am Muslim, I am Persian, I am American, and I am proud. For Radioactive, I'm Soraya Marashi. I'm Carlin Bills. And I'm Jesse Nguyen. And we're both going to be seniors at Garfield High School next year. Let's give them a little background first. What is Garfield? Factors. Everybody who comes out of there is a somebody. Bulldog 74, top dogs. Great location for all diverse families. <laughs> more diverse than where I went to high school. Uh, yeah, definitely more diverse than the school I went to. Okay, so now you know a little bit about what people on the streets of Seattle think about Garfield. Let's see how that matches up with the history of Garfield. Garfield was founded in 1923 in the Central District, which is a historically black neighborhood, and that has a lot to do with the redlining districts. And Jesse, why don't you explain what redlining is? Well, the Seattle Municipal defines it as a discriminatory practice targeted at African Americans and others of color, by which banks, insurance companies, and other institutions refused or limited loans, mortgages, and insurance within specific geographic areas. That sounds awful. So basically you're saying these people of color in Seattle couldn't buy homes or anything in specific areas of the city because they are reserved for the white people. Yep. The thing is though, the central district is rapidly being gentrified. And on top of that, a lot of white students like me are coming from different neighborhoods just to take AP classes. I actually took four last year. And I've learned that the program isn't really inclusive. You're right. I remember back in, what, fourth grade, I took the test. My elementary school, it was down in Othello, and that is a very 
person of color oriented neighborhood. It's full of Vietnamese populations, full of Ethiopian populations. And there's just so many different experiences, different people, different feelings that were, I guess, intrinsic to who I was. But when I got like placed into APP, I was thrust from that environment, that rich culture and history that I had into Washington Middle School. And I was suddenly surrounded by white people everywhere. And I had to um, change a lot of my mannerisms because they didn't fit in with um, a lot of what I saw there. And I felt so lost and um, scared. And I was so uncomfortable being there. And I've learned how to, I guess, maneuver in the AP program, but not a lot of people do. And so the system doesn't just start at high school. We've realized that it's kind of predetermined. It all starts with a test. Phyllis Fletcher, Garfield class of 1990 and managing editor of the Northwest News Network, shares her experience testing into the program. When I was in uh, kindergarten, um, I was uh, tested for Seattle's so-called gifted programs, which then were called Horizon and IPP. Mr. Lugo is a history teacher at Garfield, who I might have next year. He has a Latino background, and he has noticed that the segregation starts even early on because the basis to take the test comes from a place of privilege. Many of the students who I run across don't even know that uh, private testing is a thing for APP. And that is something that if you don't have the access, don't have the privilege, don't have the know-how or the savvy to work the system, you're not going to be able to, um, to address in a real way. If the students get accepted into the Accelerated Progress Program, or APP, I know, it's confusing, then they get to go to the middle school that offers it, like I did with Washington. Then the students get tracked into Garfield High School, where they're offered the AP classes. I know I got into the program based off a test I took in elementary school. And Phyllis remembers how that test influenced the classes she got to take at Garfield as a biracial black and white person. If you came in under that program, you, uh, you got enrolled um, in honors classes by default. So you had already been tracked from this test that may or may not reflect um, intelligence, right? Uh, you already are tracked into um, these classes that have a completely different set of expectations than so-called regular classes. Even other biracial people, if they looked more black than I did, they would just, they got treated completely differently by the school system. Basically, it can be really hard for kids who weren't tracked into the program to get into an AP class. A lot of students like Rihanna Dale had to work to get into an AP class because she's an African-American student who wasn't tracked at an early age. It was really difficult for me to even be considered put in, like put in my AP classes. I kind of had to almost not like fight my counselor, but I had to like constantly reassure him that I was going to do fine in those classes. And... Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there was no support from him either. So basically, the tracking system starts from a young age and divides students. Yep, and this divide is most clearly shown by the racial makeup of the different tracks at Garfield, or in other words, the segregation at Garfield. Mr. Lugo and Phyllis share more of their thoughts. 
I see a lot of white students. I see uh, a pretty decent amount of girls, which is uh, which is interesting. Um, but I don't see a super huge amount of uh, students of color. I see some Asian students, which is pretty, uh, again, standard for the APP kind of layout, uh, makeup, sorry. Um, but not a lot of African-American students, not a lot of Latino students, not a lot of Native American students, other students who I know are at the school in different numbers, but certainly weren't represented in my AP classroom. There was, um, uh, let's see, there was one other black girl that I had gone to school with since fifth grade who was also in IPP. Um, there was another black girl whose parents had advocated for her to be in AP classes, even though she hadn't been tracked into IPP. And um, almost everybody else was white. There were maybe a couple of Asian kids. And I've noticed how in my AP classes, white students have more support during class, and they tend to dominate the conversation. White AP students, Ivan Dusso and Zach Gates, give us a few more examples. There were definitely some very clear people who took an interest in class, and they were primarily um, upper class, usually white people. Um, there was, I think that noticeably there were probably two white girls, uh, another white boy, and then one Asian girl who spoke the most during that entire class. You know, there, there are these terrible stories that I hear from, from people where it's like only kids of color have their hands raised and the teacher says, you know, no one, really? And it sounds like something out of a movie, but it happens. So many people of color don't feel comfortable in these AP classes. Like Sion Belgu, a rising junior at Garfield who remembers what it was like being the only black person in her AP world history class. Um, I wasn't comfortable at all. Um, I hated going to that class, like, so much. I was the only person who, like, understood what I was saying. And um, I just feel like no one could relate to what I would say in that class. Anissa Ibrahim knew she wanted to be a doctor for as long as she could remember. But the journey wasn't easy being an immigrant with no institutional support and guidance. Radio actress Honey Hassan has more. Anissa Ibrahim is 30 years old. She's funny, kind, compassionate. She's an amazing sister, mother, doctor, and she's my cousin. Born in Mogadishu, Somalia, she came in when she was six years old and has accomplished so much since then. Her story inspires me. Anissa knew she wanted to be a doctor all her life. I think my earliest memories were from being in a refugee camp and seeing a TB outbreak, watching my sister get mumps and measles and just seeing a lot of disease that could easily be cured at a young age and not understanding what it was but being inspired by the people who helped. I wanted to know more about what pushed her and who supported her dreams of becoming a doctor. Our family has been her biggest source of support for getting through medical school, especially after she gave birth to both of her daughters. They let me be a crazy person and study 24-7. My siblings have, and my mom, have raised my children with me. They made sure that I didn't worry about childcare and overnight shifts. And, you know, when I was thinking about, should I have kids or not, my mom said, you, you go for it. You take care of medical school, and I'll help you take care of my grandbabies. And she's really kept to that commitment. From a young student till today, she's always had an incredible amount of motivation and drive. She came to America and had to learn a whole new culture and a whole new language, but despite all obstacles, she persevered. 
I am an immigrant, a refugee, somebody who came here and literally started from rock bottom. And to see something and say, I want that and I'm going to go after that, I think being able to accomplish that really pushed me. In school, I always had so much support with my teachers and counselors. They always pushed me, although I wasn't that easy to get through to, being I was the troublemaker and all. I grew out of that stage, by the way, guys. Anissa wasn't as lucky as me. I mean, she had family support, but not institutional and community support. I asked her what was her biggest obstacle in it all. I was the first person in my family to attend college in the United States. So not knowing the process, like how, how, how do you apply for colleges? You know, like what, what does pre-med mean? How do you, you know, get into a college? What makes you competitive? Like all of those things, I was the first person who had to figure it out. And I think it's really hard to go to a high school counselor and say, I want to become a doctor and have them say, oh, you should focus on graduating first and then go to a college counselor and say, I want to become a doctor and have them say, oh, what about nursing school? Medical school's really hard. And then looking around and seeing there's really no one that looks like me around here. I see how successful my cousin is. One thing Anissa taught me is that you can't be afraid to hear no. If I took no for an answer, I, I don't know where I would be. You know, if you see something, ask for it. You know, the first time I got into... TB research, I was like freshman in college, and everyone was like, oh no, that guy hasn't really worked with students. And I said, hey, can I work with you? And he was like, oh sure, nobody's asked me that in a long time, you know? Um, so don't be afraid to hear no, because no never killed anyone, right? But if you never ask, then that's a missed opportunity. Life will get hard, but the world's not going to stop. Always focus on your priorities. If you need support, find a mentor, someone you trust, someone you know wants the best for you. I'm still finding my way in life, figuring out who I am, what's my place in this world, and what I want to make out of my life. But I think looking up to Anissa and all her accomplishments through all her obstacles, I found a ridiculous amount of motivation, and I'm inspired to turn my life into something just as amazing. For Radioactive, I'm Hani Hassan. If you're not Somali, it might surprise you to learn that Somalia is known as the nation of poets. In honor of National Poetry Month, Radioactive's Iman Mohammed spoke with a local Somali-American poet. Hamda Yusuf grew up in West Seattle, and poetry was a family tradition. My mom used to have these poems like memorized, and off the cuff, I'd be like, "Hey, I wrote you a piece, and it's like about you," and she'll like start reciting like a poem to you while she's driving. And so, like, my dad always telling me, "Oh, we're the nation of poets." I'm like, "Oh, I know that's true because I know nobody else's mom is like writing them poems." One of Hamda's poems is called. To the well-meaning Seattleite. Because there's so many well-meaning Seattleites out there who love Africa, who love Asia. But when it comes to Asian immigrants or African immigrants in Seattle who are being loud, it's always like, why are they loud? Being an immigrant oftentimes doesn't mesh. It doesn't fit into this, this mold that you're supposed to fit into. To the well-meaning Seattleite. We are that music that rocks. We are those people who be loud. You will find our mothers in your Safeways, QFCs, and Albertsons. We are even coming to a PCC near you. We will have cell phones jammed in our headscarves. We will be on long-distance phone calls with a thousand broken hymns while you are buying all the quinoa and kale chips your eco-friendly tote bag can handle. You will give your significant other a knowing look. A look that says, 
oh, these immigrants, or why are they always so loud, or where exactly in Guatemala are these coffee beans from? Yes, we know we are loud, and we don't give a damn. I'm the worst cook. I'm actually worse than the worst. I'm the type of kid who burnt their cereal because I thought it'd be better to microwave Cocoa Puffs to get a more melty chocolate flavor. But next year, I'll be off to college. I'll be legally known as that weird thing, an adult, where I'll have to be cooking for myself. But my lunches still largely consist of poorly put together grilled cheese sandwiches. This inability to cook is not a family tradition. It's just me. My mom, or umma in our native language, Malayalam, is a complete pro. For me, learning is tough. I can derive equations, and I can write thesis statements, but I can barely turn on a rice cooker. Wait, why is there different settings for brown rice versus white rice? Because brown rice takes longer. What? Why? I grew up with those typical South Indian staples, putu with banana, portachi, and even a full sadhya meal. Sadia is the go-to dish for Indian weddings and festivals. It's served on a big banana leaf instead of a plate and has dozens of small curries. It's also the dish my mom wanted to teach me. Sadia is eaten for Anam, a festival that originated in Kerala. That's the state where my family is from in India. It's, it's traditionally a Hindu festival, but uh, everybody celebrates it. It's after the rice harvest, and usually it's in September and... Uh, and that's what my mom is teaching me right now. Look, you're messing up. How do You're messing up all over the place. Even though Alma always has this stern face on, she seemingly glides from one task to another in the kitchen. She likes to sing the song from a particular Bollywood movie. 1942, A Love Story. <laughs> I watch her whenever she's cooking. I was able to appreciate my own mamar for her ability to distinguish spices just from opening the bottle and smelling them. I'm going to take some water from this. What are you taking water from? From the avial, uh, the vegetables I cooked down. I feel like it's too, there's too much water, so I don't want to add more water. It's the time when I need to start thinking about my life outside of our family home. Adulthood, to me, is independence. How my mom was presented adulthood was entirely different. My mom's parents weren't too wild for her to pursue a job. As long as I uh, had no complaints and I passed every grade, my parents were okay. They didn't really want me to excel or anything. There was nothing like that. A lot of the time, she would push her ambition of being a doctor or engineer onto me. When she did get married, Alma was stuck. The only things she really had were her fancy sari she would wear out and her ability to cook a few traditional dishes. I'm around the age my mom had to learn to cook, but she didn't perfect those dishes for herself. She had to perfect them for a man. My mom entered an arranged marriage at a pretty young age, 21. Basically, in an arranged marriage, your family helps you find it. There was no Tinder or there was no, what is it called, Match.com or whatever. Oma yeah. is teaching me to cook at 17 to show me that I don't need to stir the pot for anyone other than myself. 
A school can't teach me the flavors of my family dishes. Only Oma could do that. Now we do put a little jaggery in here. Just to what is that? It's like brown sugar. It's like a sugar. Oma learned from her mom too, my grandmother or a mama in Malayalam. Oh, mama will make the cutlet, and then I have to do the egg wash. Everybody's hands don't get dirty, and we can like a assembly line. Assembly line, yeah. Because we used to make like 100, 200, 300 cutlets and keep. A year after I was born, my family decided it'd be best for my sister and I if we immigrated to America. Amma wanted her daughters to be everything she couldn't. It's the choices. You wouldn't have had a choice to become anything. You wouldn't have had the choice to do what you want. You wouldn't have had a choice for a lot of stuff. And choices in life, you get better here. She wanted us to study hard and not to prioritize marriage. But America is a country full of supermarkets with Wonder Bread and tomato soups. Oma didn't want us to lose touch with our heritage. For breakfast, no Fruit Loops for me. It was going to be dosha, chamundi, and sambar. But even if she could make these dishes, Oma felt like nothing tasted the same in America. Everything tasted different. Like the chi- chilies, the tomatoes, everything tastes different here. But after years of learning to use what she had, she managed. Good South Indian food from Kerala is hard to get. There are a few South Indian restaurants, but the Indian restaurant scene here is dominated by people from the north. North India and South India have distinctly different cultures. So if I want to eat a good sadhya meal, I need to learn to make it by myself. This is what? My mom is showing me the beauty in holding the knife on my own. Oh my god. Even with her by my side, oh, I was I lagging. The, I, this lime thing fell, I don't know where to put it. Okay, wait, I got it. So we're going to do, we're going to cut vegetables for uh, avian, which is like a dry, like all the root vegetables. What we do is we cook it down and then we put coconut. But in the end, the girl who burnt her cocoa puffs made a pretty okay sadia meal. I laid the dish out for my dad to try. I even looked to my mom for her final approval. I love black eyes, black eyes. I'm not a bean person. It's a black-eyed beans or peas? Peas. It's a peat. Black-eyed peas, you know, the music <sighs> group. What happened in the black-eyed peas? Alma learned to cook because that's the skill an ideal Indian bride would have. A prerequisite. But she wants me to be as independent as possible. I'm her restart. Now what my mom really has are her nice saris. Her ability to cook a few traditional dishes and the hopes for her daughters. From Radioactive, this is Lilia Musaliar. This is my friend, Graham. He just started at Evergreen College this fall. I'm going to study foreign languages, linguistics, and gender studies. He sounds so certain with his life and where he's going, but he hadn't started out that way. I don't know. It's like, you know how when kids like think they're funny, but they're not? That was me just like all the time. I mean, it's probably still me, to be honest. (laughs) Graham has a lot of support going for him, though. Really, pretty much the instant he was born, I had a full understanding of unconditional love. That's Graham's mom, Jordan Blair. She's been supportive the entire time. That is being supportive of Graham living as a gay trans adult. This whole process, I've been so lucky, and it's not like this for most trans people. When he first came out to her, though? He just said, I think I'm trans and 
I didn't know anything at all about being transgender, nothing. And I was surprised and had questions. I did get emotional. We both cried. I don't know. I also didn't like understand anything about the trans community. Both of them were entering a new world together. Neither of us knew what to do, but now in retrospect, we're both like, this is like the easiest thing. They navigated everything slowly and even got help on how to best be there for each other. People talk a lot about like how they knew that they were trans like from the beginning, and that's great. I didn't. And so it wasn't until like eighth grade that I started to question things. But even then, it wasn't like an educated questioning. It was like looking at WikiHows on how to act like a dude. But I did suggest that we find somebody that he can talk to that would help him figure it out. Because at that moment, he was wondering if he was. And so then I got a gender therapist. She was really great. I don't see her anymore because I don't. I mean, everyone needs therapy, but I'm also like, I don't need therapy. (laughs) They worked out the initial bumps in the road once he did come out. Bumps like telling his school and his friends, who all knew him from before he had transitioned, and even telling the rest of his family. He came out to a a group of our friends, our chosen family that we call the Fellowship. Graham had written an email to the Fellowship to tell them the news, but he hadn't sent it yet. We were just sitting in the car in the driveway, and he was crying. He never cries, and he was crying and crying, and so worried and saying... (laughs) What if, what if they're not going to love me anymore? What if they're not going to want to be friends with you? And I just said, it won't matter because they won't be people we want in our lives then. And I, I just told him, I said, you can't deny the world who you are anymore. And he sent it and everything changed. The fellowship had rallied around them to support Graham during this confusing time of his life. He wouldn't even use the word transgender, didn't like it. It was a very difficult first year. Um, Because at first I didn't like saying the word and I would be like, this is a good descriptor of my identity, but I didn't, but I'm not this word, I guess. But now I'm just like, I'm so trans, like the transest you can get. Um. (laughs) In fact, Graham was so trans that he decided to have the surgery. I had top surgery, which is a chest reconstruction surgery. Once they got approval for the surgery by their insurance company, the hospital only had one slot left, the day before Christmas Eve. I said yes, and then I called Graham and said, you're having surgery on the 23rd. Merry Christmas. (laughs) They were in and out of the hospital within two days, celebrating Christmas with the rest of their family and happy with the fact that Graham was another step closer to being more comfortable in his body. Graham's mom was also another step closer to her son. She learned, It's just not that big of a deal. So everybody should just love their kids. On Tuesday, President Trump took executive action to speed up the Dakota Access Pipeline project. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is taking legal action against the pipeline, and the camps in Standing Rock that once held thousands of people are clearing out. Radioactive's Rachel Long was there in November. She grew up in Seattle and is enrolled in the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. She believes that even if the pipeline is built, Standing Rock represents a historic step for Native Americans and a cultural awakening that can't be taken away. 
Today, there are more than 566 native tribes and nations in the United States. For the past 500 years, we have not been treated as distinct groups. And we've all experienced historical trauma from invasion, broken treaties, boarding schools, and more. My name is Rachel Lam. I'm Cherokee, white, and Chinese Malaysian. I went to Standing Rock in November with 16 of my college friends. Between the 17 of us, we represented 13 unique native tribes and nations. We drove 36 hours to get there. Our first pit stop on our road trip was dinner at a burger joint. While we waited for our food, I asked my friend Maluhina Kinimaka why she was going. For me, like it's the last straw. It's like if you don't start somewhere to like push back, then they're just going to keep pushing all like walking all over you. <laughs> Malu and other native Hawaiians recently fought the development of one of their sacred mountains on the big island of Hawaii. Malu says that the same fight is happening at Standing Rock. It's someone trying to like strip you of your like your land and your culture and tell you that your values aren't important. Or I don't know, like a large corporation trying to infringe upon your rights as a human in order to make a buck, you know? It wasn't just Malu who was fed up. Everyone in my group could name instances when non-natives had taken or attempted to take their land against their will. We arrived at Standing Rock early Monday morning. We've been driving between barren brown hills for hours. And Ochedi Sakawin rose suddenly, a big camp with hundreds of teepees and tents and RVs belted in by a fence. From the fence hung hundreds of colorful signs and flags from the different indigenous nations there. There was a big sign at the camp's entrance. It read, absolutely no alcohol or drugs on you or in you. This is a camp of prayer and ceremony. I was here. I was at Ochetti Sakoin, and somehow I also kind of felt like I'd come home. Ochetti Sakoin is one of the camps at Standing Rock. It's the only camp on disputed treaty territory. That means the Lakota people think the land is theirs, and while the United States acknowledges it was taken illegally, it hasn't given the land back. At Ochetti, I met Phyllis Bald Eagle. Phyllis is Minakoju Lakota. She's here with her entire family, her husband, children, and grandchildren. Phyllis has always lived on a reservation, except for when she was forced to attend a government boarding school. She says that Ocheti is better than home. Living here in Ocheti, Shakoi, I feel that the children feel comfortable. They feel free. They're able to learn our ways again, our culture, our way of life. On a reservation, we're, we're colonized. It's very stressful. So when they're here, they have no fear, they have courage. It's different. Phyllis says that at Ocheti Sakowin, Native people are living in a way that they haven't for hundreds of years. The way we used to live, the things we used to do, is happening now. Where you meet your relatives, you meet your allies, you do your ceremonies, and a lot of prayers. Um, we did that back then, and that was back in the 1800s. So today, what's happening today is history. At Ocheti Sakoin, people pray in their native ways every morning. One hears songs and drums late into the night. Lakota and other horse riders race along the river. Teenagers play pickup lacrosse right outside the flap of their teepees. It feels like a cultural renaissance. Over 300 native nations have camped out in North Dakota, all in support of one tribe. It's like all of the tribes are different parts of the same body. That's what Leroy DeJoli thinks at least. He's Navajo. I see myself part of that body, and I see myself looking at Standing Rock, and they're hurting. 
I'm hurting too as well. And that's that's the reason why I'm here is because I'm in support. When one part of your body hurts, we all hurt. I too am in awe of Indian country's unity. This kind of intertribal solidarity is historically unheard of. But what's happening at Standing Rock goes beyond Indian country. Here's my friend Leo Jombard III. We're not just in this for our own safety, our own sovereignty. We're praying for Dakota Access as kids, too. And we're, we're praying for all of the generations to come after us because we know that this is something that affects us further down the line. Native cultures share the value of looking out for future generations. That's why we care so much about taking care of land and resources. The Dakota Access Pipeline could threaten the water of five states. And fossil fuel dependence threatens the Earth's future. Phyllis believes that Standing Rock is the beginning of a prophecy come true. Seven generations ago, our ancestors made a prophecy that the seventh generation will wake up the world and make this world a better place for, for them and for their children. In the late 1800s, Lakota elders foresaw a time when Native people would overcome all of the suffering that had happened to them. They would lead humanity to remake a circle with the earth. That time is said to be now. My children are the beginning of the seventh generation, and whatever we have to do as elders, we're going to support the youth because of that prophecy. And it's happening and it's coming true. It hurts to think about the past 500 years. Time after time, Native land is stolen and Native lives violated. And when we try to resist, sometimes it feels like nothing ever comes of it. What if Native people are supposed to wake up the world, but the world ignores us like it has ignored us? I have no idea if the pipeline will actually be stopped, but even if it isn't, I think Phyllis is right. Standing Rock is the start of something new. And I know Indian country could really wake up the world. It's already begun to wake up itself. For Radioactive, I'm Rachel Long. The process of immigrating to the United States is complicated and getting harder all the time. The person we'll hear from next immigrated from Ghana to go to an Ivy League school and ended up in Seattle. He's made it most of the way through the immigration process. He's now wading through the questions of the U.S. citizenship application. Radioactive's Amina Ibrahim has more. I know that you're applying for your citizenship. Do you mind if we go through um, some of the questions and look at it? Okay, now this, I think, has to be one of my favorite questions. Between March 23, 1933 and May 8, 1945, did you work for or associate in any way, either directly or indirectly, with A, the Nazi government of Germany? No. I wasn't even born. My name is Abdullah Yakubu. I uh, came to the U.S. to pursue a master's in public administration. And I went to grad school at uh, Cornell University. When I first came to study at Cornell, the plan was to go back to Ghana after I completed my studies. Have you ever advocated 
either directly or indirectly the overthrow of any government by force or violence? No. So mind you, this is a 20-page form. Did you expect it to be that long? (laughs) No, I didn't. In truth, I had no real expectations as to the length of the form. How many total days, 24 hours or longer, did you spend outside the United States during the last five years? That was 15 days. I went to Ghana. Why did I decide to apply for citizenship? That's a safer option. You know, I'm black, I'm an immigrant, and I'm Muslim. I don't want to have to travel and get stuck at the airport coming back because of some rule changes. Have you ever been a member of or in any way associated either directly or indirectly with a terrorist organization? No. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to go to grad school in the U.S.? Well, I had uh, worked for about five years, slightly more in Ghana, at the Ministry of Finance. And I just got into a point where I felt that I needed more. I wanted the best. So, you know, I looked up the best schools and found that one of them was in the U.S. The process of coming to the U.S. So I got admission and then I had to apply for a visa. You either had to, one, get an appointment date to go to the embassy, or two, they had a day, um, so I think it was a Wednesday, where if you had admission, you know, you would go to the embassy, and then they would let the first hundred people come in. Uh, So that's the route I took because I couldn't get uh, an appointment. And of course, I wasn't one of the first hundred people that first time. However, uh, being there at least, I got a coupon that enabled me to get in to the embassy the next Wednesday. The person that I ended up interviewing with was uh, one of those people who declined a lot of people. When it got to my turn, I was a bit skeptical, but worked out for the best. The interviewer asked the questions. When he was done, it was, come back for your visa on Friday. Have you ever persecuted either directly or indirectly any person because of race, religion, national origin, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion? No. So I got into New York City. I took the bus to Ithaca, New York. I got to Ithaca between midnight and 1 a.m. There was at least three or four inches of snow. I didn't have a cell phone, didn't have a place that I was going to stay. Uh, The person I was supposed to stay with was still in Ghana. Uh, That was a problem. And I had no idea where I was since I had never been to Ithaca. But the fortunate thing was that I was right in front of one of the community centers 
on campus. That was a godsend because man, it was cold. <laughs> it was, it was freezing. <laughs> okay, have you ever been a prostitute or procured anyone for prostitution? No. So after Cornell, I got a job at uh, Goldman Sachs, and then you know I worked there for a little bit. And how long have you been in Seattle for? Almost three years now. Yeah. Have you ever a been a habitual drunkard? No. Who did I have to leave behind? Yeah, pretty much, I left everybody because. You know, I'm I'm not in the U.S. with any of my close friends or family. I'm I'm here alone, and uh, it's been it's been a bit difficult. Was there a moment where you regretted your decision to come here? No, I'm glad I made the decision. I learned a lot. It's uh, gotten me to where I am. Okay, this would be part twelve additional information about you, person applying for naturalization. Question 10. So many of us live far away from the people we love. It's hard to stay connected, and family illness can make it even harder. Radioactive's Patrick Liu explains how his mom goes to lengths to show her family how much she cares. It's Monday evening. My mom, my dad, and I are sitting at the dinner table with our eyes trained on the computer screen in front of us. I see my mom's three older sisters and my grandma. They're eating brunch and we're eating dinner. They tease us for eating Costco dumplings and flaunt their own homemade ones. My mom's family lives in Tianjin, China. We're in Redmond, Washington. We only get to see them once a year, so my mom, Guo Pingma, says Skype is the next best thing. Sitting in front of the screen is as if we are just sitting um, next to each other. Of course, you can't touch each other, right? But you can, it's so close. We Skype three nights a week, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Now, through the computer screen, we see my third oldest aunt take out an oxygen machine and hook it up to Grandma, my mom's eyebrows furrow. Grandma has been bedridden for almost 17 years, Mom tells me, practically since I was born. Every day she struggles with back problems, osteoporosis, a heart condition, and a number of other problems. It's a dangerous situation, but... My mom can't really help. It's her sisters who take care of grandma, and my mom feels guilty. Through these Skype calls, she wants them to know she cares. If they don't see me show up, right? They don't see me, they don't talk to me. There, there might be some misconceptions or assumptions that I don't care. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling. My parents came to the US to further pursue graduate studies in 1993. It was tough. My mom wrote letters every week because grandma didn't have a phone. But it was a sacrifice that grandma supported. When we were growing up, she said, oh, just disperse, scatter, don't stay home. I am 100% sure she wouldn't be happy if I were to move back. She, even though she 
she craved to be close, right, to see her children. But she also sees that as constraining them. My mom felt comfortable leaving the family because everyone was pretty healthy. Plus, at the time, mom only thought she would stay in America for five or six years. But at the end of those six years, it became clear that my parents were settling down here. They both found jobs, and I was born. Mom tried to bring grandma and my second oldest aunt to the U.S., but my aunt was denied a visa, so that hope was dashed. Then, grandma's health took a downturn, and she became bedridden. We couldn't move back, and they couldn't move here, so we would have to rely on technology to stay in contact. Thankfully, by 2004, we were able to start video calling. When we first started using this technology, we video called with mom's family every night, even on weekends. And on Friday, we also called dad's family since they too live in Tianjin, China. Recently, we cut back to three days a week. Grandma relies on these Skype calls. She keeps a small calendar on the bed and she counts the days by it, so she knows when we will call in. Grandma loves how it feels like we're face-to-face. My mom said that it just says good. <laughs> Being able to stay in contact with grandma while her health is on the decline is so important to mom, and here's why. At age 16, she wasn't around when her dad suddenly died. So now, mom doesn't want to miss a single opportunity. As a mom's getting older and older, I almost feel that so every time I talk to her, then that's one less opportunity, maybe down the road. The fact grandma is even still alive today is all thanks to my mom's three sisters, who have lived together with grandma and cared for her for 17 years. If not for them, grandma would have been long gone. I am 100% positive she would have been long gone. And that's why this whole situation became much harder last year. My second oldest aunt was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and has been in chemotherapy. So now, my two remaining aunts are taking care of my grandma and my aunt. For my mom, it's been unbearable to see them struggle like this from afar, especially my aunt. I don't know how many times I cried (laughs) during that period of time. I knew that she was in such pain. I I just want to make her feel better. My mom's taking video calls from her sisters at 2 or 3 in the morning when they needed to cry with her. And she gives medical advice and financial support whenever they need it. It's hard to watch for me and my dad, Suyuan Liu. She was really stressed uh, last year. There were times uh, when they were all breaking down. But those were really important uh, moments for all of them uh, to get through it together. But sometimes... For all of my mom's efforts, it's just not enough. Like when, during a Skype call, grandma suddenly feels pain or has a shortness of breath, and my aunts rush in to help her. When you are witnessing an emergency situation, you just feel so helpless. And, and what do you do? Those are the moments that you feel that Skype doesn't help at all, right? And only being physically there will be helpful. That's why, after I head off to college, my mom wants to visit her mom and her sisters more often. Through all this, my mom knows there's no real solution to grandma's illness, and the only question left is when grandma will leave us. But, she says, there's no point in stressing over when people will be gone. 
while they are here, do something for them. For Radioactive, I'm Patrick Leo.